Well, next, Clark H. Pinnock is a well-known proponent of evidentialist apologetics whose approach to the defense of Christian faith has been usually diverse. His Set Forth Your Case book focuses on the philosophical and cultural movements that shaped 20th century thought in order to expose the inadequacy of non-Christian worldviews. Again, worldviews coming into play here. In this book, he uh, decries rationalism and mysticism and espoused the epistemological alternative of empirical verifiability. Thus, his apologetic system centers on the historical resurrection of Christ and the historical reliability of the Bible. So here, his, his, his focus is on uh, the resurrection and, uh, 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 I guess, more broadly, the historicity of the Bible. Yeah, and, and so you notice what we've done now. We've we in this and beginning with Pinnock here, we've moved toward an approach that just doesn't assume Christianity to be true, and it's not just focused on deism. Now we begin to uh, focus on atheistic belief as well, with uh, you know, in terms of their presentation of Pinnock. Mm-hmm. And so like other evidentialists, Pinnock uses several lines of evidence as reasonable probabilities that combine together like argumentative links in a legal brief or strands in a rope, right? So he offers, in fact, yet another metaphor, not only the legal brief or these rope strands, but he says like legs of a table, each shaft of evidence does its part to support the weight of the case for Christianity. And so because we are all culturally conditioned in different ways, it is inevitable that some of us will be more impressed with one evidential approach than another. So again, we have this idea of these various lines of approach, lines of evidence, allowing us to have a cumulative kind of approach, right? Mm -hmm. Pinnock acknowledges that the, the knowledge gained through empiricism is only probable, right? So this isn't certain knowledge. This is deductive knowledge. This is kind of an inductive kind of approach here. But he maintains that one cannot wait until all uncertainty disappears before dealing with ultimate issues, right? At some point, you have to uh, get off the fence, right? You have to make a decision because these are ultimate issues. And so if all we have is probability uh, and we can't be certain, uh, waiting for certainty, you know, could get us in trouble in the long run kind of idea. Right, right. And one could argue, um, maybe uh, uh, th- there's no such thing as fence setting, but uh, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that later. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. w- w- which direction do you want to go? Uh, archaeology, uh, eyewitness testimony, uh, uh, the, the scientific evidence in scripture, pr- prophecy, uh, all these are, are kind of different uh, ways to, to kind of hit a person uh, that they, they might not be uh, too predisposed to uh, hearing about archaeological evidence that supports uh, the rationality of, of Christianity. Uh, uh, it could be the the eyewitness testimony in Scripture and and uh, the uh, undesigned coincidences that uh, that can be uh, pulled forth. And so uh, um, here, um, uh, uh, Pinnock would would um, use these uh, different strands and avenues of of, uh, of approaches uh, to uh, talk to his. Uh, interlocutor his uh, audience yeah this this reminded me when i was uh, looking at this of uh william james and his arguments for uh, against the idea that you have to have sufficient evidence in order to believe and william james makes a similar type of argument here mm-hmm. you know it, uh it's kind of a pragmatic argument right if uh, 
sometimes all we have is all we have. And so we have to make a decision based on that. And so that's the kind of idea that we see here. Right. All right. Then we move on to John Warwick Montgomery. And he has numerous books and articles, years of teaching on the graduate level in the United States and France, and public debates have earned him a prominent place as a Christian theologian, historian, lawyer, and apologist. I mean, he's just doing too much. He needs to slow down <laughs> because he's making us all look bad. Well, Montgomery influenced Josh McDowell, through whom Evidential Pro gained a wider popular audience. Um, uh, evidence that demands a verdict was uh, McDowell's big one. And then um, he's uh, since published new evidences that demand a verdict. And More I think he's, evidence that I demands think he's written with his son. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it's, it, it's a big, thick book. So if you just want to, uh, you know, plop it down and say there, there's all the evidence, uh, you know, you can go through it uh, uh, that way as well. But in the 1970s and 80s, Montgomery was the leading advocate of the evidentialist approach to apologetics. So he's the guy. He's the guy that um, that uh, inspired a, a lot of people. And I believe uh, Mitch Stokes is, is also studied under under him as well, who mm, we read yeah. before. And so Montgomery's apologetic system is uh, like other evidentialists, uh, strongly empirical, right? Uh, with an emphasis on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He regards apologetics as a kind of evangelism designed to overcome objections to the saving message of the gospel. Uh, he seeks to do this by grounding Christianity on historically verifiable truths beginning with a demonstration of the reliability of the gospel records as a primary historical document. Well, given the authenticity and competency of the New Testament documents, Montgomery then defends their testimony to Jesus Christ. He cites a fourfold test for exposing and determining uh, perjury from a legal text. Uh, first, uh, the internal de uh, defects in the witness himself that is anything about the witness that would be undermined that would undermine his credibility that's a, a very key in um our our, our legal work uh, today uh, we talk about uh you know if, if you're uh the um nice uh, neighborhood lady next door who um, didn't even have a traffic ticket uh, and and you're the one pointing the finger at uh, at the murderer well then that person's more likely uh, to be believed than the prison snitch who uh, <laughs> is claiming that uh, that uh, the, the person confessed to him with all the grisly details and uh, sure I mean he may get 10 years off his sentence but yeah you know he was there and you should believe him so the credibility of the witness is important and that's determined uh, in our court of law and so here um, 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 Montgomery uh, wants to do the same as well. Well, then the second is the external defects uh, in the witness himself, that is motives or reasons why the witness may be lying in this instance. Again, uh, uh, very standard. Uh, uh, the third part is the internal defects in the testimony itself, that is inconsistencies in the witness statements. So. You know, you uh, you witnessed the bank robbery. Uh, they got into a blue car and left, and you uh, saw the driver. It's the, those two men at the witness one, uh, but it shows on camera that it wasn't the blue car. It was actually a red car. So, uh, you know, they, they have uh, inconsistencies with the witness testimony there. And then the fourth one is external defects in the testimony itself. That is inconsistencies between the witness statements and other facts or testimonies from other witnesses. And again, uh, you, you have uh, um, uh, uh, testimony for, uh, for the defense and for um, and, and, and for the state uh, and uh, the, the people trying to uh, uh, 
present the case that uh, it is true. And so you have these um, these conflicts. And so uh, are you able to overcome with a certain degree of, of favorability? And again, all, all, all four of these work together in conjunction. So, you know, if, if you have uh, uh, a, a person who uh, may have uh, bad eyesight, but knows cars in and out, well, their testimony of, of the vehicle identification might actually be swayed more uh, in your favor because that person knows, you know, exactly what that particular engine sounds like. And so even though uh, it was fuzzy because they didn't have their glasses, um, they were able to identify it through that, that might sway uh, people who uh, who know a little bit more about cars, and so uh, they're more likely to take uh, his testimony rather than the person who has uh, 20/20 eyesight. Uh, but maybe that person uh, knows uh, uh, how to draw people, and so they're really focused on details, and they're able to tell exactly uh, the bank robber's mole that was on his right <laughs> cheek, and it, 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 uh, you know he he had a goatee. Uh, uh, not all people that wear goatees uh, are are evil, mind you, <laughs> except in other universes. Uh, so all these things fit together, and all these things are what Montgomery is, is wanting to look at to defend the testimony of of Jesus Christ, and so. Yeah. Uh, th th this th this is uh, a big task to take uh, because it's putting up all these various strands uh, and subjecting them to outside um, um, argumentation. So it's not just uh, something that you posit. You also have to defend just like a court case does. Right. And so notice basically what he does here is he looks at the witness, right? Uh, him or herself, the credibility of the witness and the motive of the witness. So that's a look at the witness. That's the first two. And the second two then looks at the witness's testimony, right? It's inconsistencies and that sort of thing. So these are the two main things that he focuses on with these fourfold tests. The witness itself, their credibility, their motive, and then the testimony of the witness and how does it align with the facts, right? Okay. And so what he does here then is he applies his fourfold test within an evidentialist approach, and he presents four reasons for concluding that the New Testament documents cannot be impinged or impunged with um, uh, providing false testimony. And so we see these four then approaches here. First, there is no reason to regard the New Testament writers as untrustworthy, right? So that's the credibility of the New Testament writers. And he says they are trustworthy. There is no reason to regard them as untrustworthy. Secondly, they had, that is the New Testament writers, no motive to lie about Jesus and indeed suffered greatly for their testimony uh, to Jesus. And so that is the motive of the witnesses, right? So that's the first two that he, he we referenced before. And now he looks at those with regard to the testimony uh, regarding Christianity. So the witnesses, they are no reason to see them as untrustworthy. Uh, they, you know, there's no motive to lie. Thirdly, the gospel accounts differ enough to be regarded as independent yet are not inconsistent with one another. So this one and the next one, now he's looking at their testimony. And their testimony, obviously, is the gospel accounts, right? That's what he's uh, looking at here. And then fourthly, the New Testament accounts have been abundantly confirmed by archaeological and historical study. So they're internally consistent, right? And the external evidence seems to confirm what they're saying. So they are all four of his particular criteria are met with uh, with regard to the uh, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Right. So why why is the 
don't people look at this and believe it's it's weird it's all right there well the next stage in montgomery's apologetic is his argument for the resurrection of jesus as a historical event so uh just like uh how the classicalists would um kind of hinge uh their uh second part of their argumentation on jesus well it, it makes sense that uh, montgomery is, is going to as well well the core is the missing body argument if jesus body didn't rise from the dead then someone must have stolen it because an occupied tomb would have brought the resurrection story to a grinding halt. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, the, the New Testament talks about, we know where the grave of David is. Let's go there and we could, we could see where he's buried. We, we, his bones are right there. So why wouldn't they, the, the, the Jewish authorities go, what are you talking about? Being raised from the dead. There's the Roman guard right there. We, we could just <laughs> have him roll it back and, and there it is. Um, but, but it seems like, now we have to pay people to say that uh, the disciples overcame the Roman guard and then uh, and then uh, m- uh, made away with Jesus' body. So that that's really what happened. So so someone must have stolen it, right? That's that's uh, that's that's there. So because an occupied tomb would have brought the resurrection story to a grinding halt, but the Roman authorities would not steal the body because that might contribute to unrest. Upend what uh, exactly they wanted to to squash, and really one of the reasons why uh, Pilate went uh, uh, as far as he did was pronouncing uh, death on Christ, uh, because he he uh, was essentially put in Jerusalem, this this backwater country, uh, to quash uh, all uprisings. And he hadn't aggratiated himself to uh, the the Jewish people himself by uh, m- mixing uh, the the blood of those he slaughtered into their sacrifices as as a, a big no no. And so he wasn't on as best of terms with the Jewish uh, leaders as what uh, what he probably wanted to be. So uh, that that's the Roman case. Well, the Jewish authorities would not steal it because that would undermine their religious influence. Again, one of the reasons why they they um, brought uh, Jesus before Pilate uh, was because they couldn't carry out a capital punishment. Only the, the Romans could. And um, to 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 um, steal the body as, as a way of of uh, not making um, a martyr of Jesus in, in that way uh, would completely un- upend uh, their influence. And then the disciples wouldn't steal it and then lie about Jesus rising from the dead because that would get them into trouble with the Romans and Jewish authorities, uh, precisely for the reasons I just mentioned. And, you know, the, uh, uh, the, 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 as the story goes, what were they doing? Well, they weren't boldly pro- proclaiming, uh, you know, the, the, the death of Christ and the travesty of both uh, Jewish and, and Roman leaders. They were hiding. They were hiding in the locked rooms and they were sending their women out to to do what the, they would not do. So <laughs> so all these things uh, kind of uh, fold together, showing that uh, that the, the missing body scenario uh, seems to not hinge on a stolen body, but uh, but on it just uh, going away. So by process of elimination, then no one stole the body and therefore the body must have been raised from the dead. Yeah. So there you have it. Romans didn't steal it. The Jewish didn't steal it because of all these various uh, results. And of course, the uh, the disciples didn't steal it. And so Jesus' body had to be written. He had to rise from the dead. And so uh, he goes on to say that given that then that Jesus rose from the dead, can this fact alone establish the truths of Jesus' claims to deity? And Montgomery stoutly answers in the affirmative, arguing that the very nature of legal argument 
judgments rendered on the basis of factual verdicts rest on the ability to of facts, he tells us, to speak for themselves. He points out that the resurrection did not occur in a factual vacuum, but was accompanied by Jesus's own explanation of its significance as the miraculous act of God. So Jesus said he was going to do this. Uh, then it happened. So it was not done in a vacuum. And of course, we have all of these various facts that he points out. And so it shows that indeed Jesus rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think he probably could go farther, and I, I, I believe uh, um, Tim McGrew has gone uh, uh, built upon this uh, idea where it's not just uh, a factual vacuum of Jesus' claims, but all of the Old Testament you can you can bring in and say, well, th this is what should have been expected. It wasn't expected because of, of various reasons that the you know the Jewish authorities uh, weren't doing. Uh, 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 that was in line with what they should have been doing. Uh, but all, uh, you know, um, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, all, all these things uh, fall upon uh, this one fact. And in fact, that's all what has, Christian history has said is that it all, uh, all of history, all of human history has led up to the focal point, which is the cross at the, at the top of the hill. And so, um, so it's not just uh, uh, Jesus' own words, but it's all the words of the Old Testament as well. Mm-hmm. Well, not only can Jesus' resurrection alone establish his deity, it can establish the existence of the deity in the first place. The existence of God then becomes uh, what um, Montgomery says here is the pro it becomes the proper inference from Jesus' resurrection, as he himself explained it, not a priori metaphysical hurdle to jump in order to arrive at the proper historical and evidential interpretation of that event. So the last comment is aimed at classical apologetics, which argues that the existence of the God needs to be established before trying to show the truth of the meaning of the resurrection. Listen, you guys, to, to, you don't need two-step approach, just this one, because yeah. if you can prove Jesus, his claims, uh, the claims, I, if I rise from the dead, I am God, worship me, well then, th that's included. Then he in rises <laughs> from the dead, and therefore his claims yeah. have been shown to be true. Yeah. We should at least listen a little closer to the guy who <laughs> rises from the dead. Okay. <laughs> well, Montgomery, in fact, was one of the first evidentialists to self-consciously distinguish his apologetic method from the classical approach. So no longer is he just answering against deism, but he's also uh, um, um, separating himself out further from uh, the classicalists. Yeah, so he he you know there's this deist thing, but he's focusing on on you know the atheist, and he does that by saying God exists, and you can tell it because Jesus rose from the dead, and he said he would do it. And oh, by the way, you don't need this two step approach, <laughs> classicalists, right? Because we have the resurrection, right? And that shows that not only does uh, is Jesus. Uh, you know, God, but that if that's the case, then God does exist. And so we don't need that two-step approach, right? All right, so that's uh, uh, Montgomery. Uh, next in our trek here uh, is the uh, last uh, person that they, they want. So there's five major uh, uh, folks that they're focusing on here. And Richard, uh, Richard uh, Swinburne here is the last guy they want us to to consider. Uh, the diversity, they tell us, of evidentialist apologetics would not be well represented without some notice of the work of Richard Swinburne. So from uh, 1977 to 1981, Swinburne, who was a British philosopher, published a trilogy of books in defense of theism. 
And then in 1989, he launched a four book series defending specifically Christian beliefs. And so these seven books constitute, uh, they tell us, the most sophisticated evidentialist defense of Christianity to appear so far. So again, it's dangerous to listen to this podcast because as we're supposed to be taking books off our shelves, we might be putting seven more on top of this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in 1996, he published, Is There a God? In which he offered a more popular level statement of his apologetic. Swinburne uh, summarizes his argumentation at the beginning of the book. He says, scientists, historians, and detectives observe data and proceed thence to some theory about what best explains the occurrences of these data. We can analyze the criteria which they use in reaching a conclusion that a certain theory is better supported by the data than a different theory. That is more likely on the basis that that data would be true. So everyone does this. Historians, scientists, detectives, uh, uh, what you want to eat for dinner, uh, all these things uh, come because you bring in the data, you look at it, and then you make the best uh, uh, inference to it. And there, are, uh, there's argumentation to be made of, you know, uh, what influences uh, uh, come to you from the outside and the inside. Uh, but what he's saying here is that uh, as, as, as it comes to uh, uh, big, important uh, things in our lives like science and history and, uh, and, and murderers uh, and, and crime, uh, they take in uh, this data and then um, uh, figure out which theory best uh, explains the, the, the data for all, all that's come in. Well, using those same criteria, we find that the view that there is a God explains everything we observe, not just some narrow range of data. It explains the fact that there is a universe at all, the scientific laws operate within it, that it contains conscious animals and humans that very complex intricacies organize bodies, and that have abundant opportunity for developing ourselves and the world, as well as the more particular data that human report miracles and have religious experiences. So all those things from from the creation of the universe down to us, down to the fact that there are claims of religious experiences and miracles, all those things uh, formed together, which uh, uh, the existence of God uh, explains it the very best. Well, then the very same criteria which scientists use to reach uh, their own theories leads us to move beyond those theories to a creator God who sustains everything in existence. And so Swinsburne's uh, central apologetic argument is that the existence of this God is significantly more probable than not. He contends that the existence of God provides a simple, powerful explanation of what we already know. He says it remains passing strange that there exists anything at all. But if there is to exist anything, it is far more likely to be something with the simplicity of God than something like the universe with all of its characteristics crying out for explanation (laughs) without there being God to explain. Mm -hmm. So God is the best explanation of all of the various facts that we see. Right. Well, he admits that it is always possible to challenge this or that element of his or any other theist argument. He points out, though, that that uh, this is also true in science, history and politics. So we can't say uh, we absolutely know this to be the case because you can say, but do we? Because we've always said that 
for previous things in science and history and politics. But life is short and we have to act on the basis of what such evidence as we have had time to investigate, he says, and uh, to uh, show on balance to be probably true. So he says, uh, we can't just wait until time X uh, for us to um, make the determination of is there a God or is there not, uh, uh, just as we can't do that for uh, the evidence for um, for evolution or, uh, or uh, relativity or for uh, um, um, whether or not uh, 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 Caesar crossed the Rubicon. All these <laughs> things have to kind of, you have to make the determination at, at, at a good point if you have enough available data to you. And it seems like all of history, all of creation, all of uh, um, the, the uh, eyewitness evidence and external reports, uh, lead us to have the at least the ability to make the claim here and now of whether or not God is true, and he's going to posit that uh, it is true that God exists. Right, and, and of course, we just saw this same claim with Clark, uh, similar claim anyway, with Clark Pinnock, right? He makes a similar claim. Uh, now, where Swinburne says life is short, and so we have to make a decision, Pinnock says basically the same thing. We can't accumulate all of the evidence, uh, and then because there are vitally important issues that we need to make decisions on. So this is a real similar type of claim that we just saw with uh, with Pena. All right, so what's the conclusion of all of this? We've kind of worked through these five uh, apologetics, right? Um, and they tell us that although these five apologists uh, profiled in this chapter are identified with the evidential tradition pioneered by Joseph Butler, some distinctive differences, as we saw among them, uh, uh, shouldn't be overlooked. John uh, Warwick Montgomery is perhaps the most thoroughly empiricist or inductivist of the five, by which we mean that uh, inductive argument or factual investigation plays the most comprehensive role in his apologetic, they suggest. Uh, he's also the only one of the five who was overtly critical of the classical apologetic tradition and its reliance on deductive arguments. And uh, of course, uh, they mentioned that yet even with Montgomery, um, he uh, rejects pure empiricism. Well, evidentialism is by nature rather eclectic. Evidentialists freely combine multiple lines of reasoning, often from widely different dis disciplines, in support of the Christian faith. So they might take um, um, how to question uh, a suspect from detectives, but also might bring in um, a, a um, historical approach that uh, that doesn't uh, uh, align with uh, uh, solving uh, cases for crime. Right. Thus, or often... maybe science as the scientific method to look at a certain amount of evidence. Exactly. That sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, or or, or uh, mixing science with history as well and, 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 mm. and doing that case as well. Uh, you know, uh, well, we we know this uh, cold fire can't uh, can't uh, be known in history because we can't create it. And therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the way that uh, different um, uh, um, old style armies use this, this uh, uh, burning, unburning fire is not possible. <laughs> well, except we have multiple, multiple reports of it happening. We just can't produce it. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have to, again, uh, take the evidence in and go, okay, well, which one do we trust? Uh, all these uh, different lines of, of eyewitness testimony, or would we say, well, we can't create it, therefore it's not possible. So uh, e even even among the sciences, the hard sciences, uh, uh, we have to do uh, what, uh, uh, 
the evidentialists are, are claiming as well. Well, thus, uh, they often recast arguments from other apologetic approaches as elements in an overall evidential case for the truth of Christianity. Each evidentialist also tends to emphasize those types of evidences that are of special interest to him or her. In the following chapters, we will examine the evidential approach in greater detail, drawing on the writings of these five apologists and others who follow in the evidentialist tradition. So that's what we'll uh, do next time when we get to chapter nine, uh, evidentialist apologetics, faith founded in fact, and, uh, and, um, we'll, we'll see if, if they hold the key, uh, to, uh, making it easier because it seems like if, if, uh, uh, two-step approach is, is, uh, is a bit much for us, especially, uh, I think we, we covered it, um, a little bit last time in the negative is sometimes it's such a heavy concept for people. You know, you, you're, you're talking about a priori and, and, and uh, t- talking about all these things, well, j- just give them pro- probability that they do in their everyday life and, and maybe even in their own job. They, they take in the evidence and, and they look at, okay, what choice best to make? Uh, you can talk to uh, police officers or you can talk to scientists, you can talk to historians, you can talk to um, uh, the, you know, the, the person driving the bus um, because of, of uh, the way that uh, we, we take in evidence and and make the best uh, um, um, outcome uh, in our own mind. Uh, we'll 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 speak to them, and these different um, 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 lines of argumentation uh, come out, whether it be archaeological, uh, uh, eyewitness testimony, um, a prophecy. Uh, all, all these things can can still be included in the evidentialist model. And instead of two, you just have one approach. So um, that's what we'll look at and see. If uh, if they hold the key to to what you want to uh, be when you grow up to be an apologist as well, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll continue on with uh, chapter nine, uh, Lord willing, next time, and uh, we'll always say uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.